This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. What is the world like today for the people who are frequently shocked, challenged and been at the forefront of changes that many see as outrageous? Are the rainbow people still changing their world for the better? I'm Malcolm Angus. Welcome to Outrageous, the program that investigates, supports and advocates for the rainbow people of New Zealand. Uh, good day, listeners, once again to The Outrageous Show with Malcolm Angus on 105.4 FM. And I have the uh, amazing opportunity to continue an interview with somebody that I see as a colleague that I know virtually nothing about, um, Danielle, who talked last week about her early life in South Africa and how at the age of 15 she moved to New Zealand um, and began a new life here, a very different one, I'm sure, to the one that uh, if she'd had a vision of her life in South Africa, she would never have envisaged this one. Um, so we were talking about Daniel's line of work, which is um, counselling, and Dan, uh, Daniel at the last moment mentioned that a number of her clients are rainbow people. So I'd like to kick off on that point. Welcome again, Daniel, to Outrageous. Thank you, Malcolm. It's lovely to be here. Daniel, tell us about um, the rainbow people that you meet with in not, not just um, generally, but in the course of your work. Now, you're dealing with family counselling, crisis in family. Where is that happening for the rainbow people? Um, some of the work that I do is parents of young uh, rainbow kids. Um, it's also rainbow people themselves, so people who identify as queer, lesbian, gay, bisexual, intersex, trans, asexual, you know, the LGBTQIA+, plus, the plus stands for everything that sits under the umbrella. And there are, you know, so many of us that sit under this umbrella. And so my work is one-on-one and um, in some contexts family work. A lot of it is deconstructing societal norms and cultural norms around how rainbow people have been treated, are still being treated. And working with clients and families and parents' goals as to how they want to be in relationship with their rainbow family member. So is it the parents that come to you? Yes. Initially? What is the, who, what is the age of the youngest client that you would be helping? Ten. Ten. And obviously, they they'd have a guardian or somebody. You would you or would you be helping them as an individual or within a family unit the whole time? I start with an assessment of the family, so I'd like to see everybody in the room, whoever the young person lives with. Sometimes the parents will say the young person needs to do the work, but it might be that the parents need to do the work. So my initial phase is an assessment phase where I get to do a comprehensive assessment of the young person, their functioning, the family functioning, where the trauma sits. Is it with the young person or is it family or ancestral intergenerational trauma? And it usually is all there. 
And then I'll make a decision in consultation with the parents and the young person as well around who, who do they think needs to do the work? Where does the work need to happen? Young people are very onto it and they speak truth and they'll usually let you know their level of engagement or their motivation to engage very early on. Um, and I let the family know where I think the work needs to maybe start. But it's usually a a three-pronged approach. So it'll be the family, the parents, myself, and the the client. So it's it's it can be quite complicated in the beginning, but it usually smooths out. And, and I'd like to think that the work's done where it needs to be done. And sometimes it's not with the client, so the, the, the parent will want the client, the young person to engage, and it is more that the parent needs to engage. Okay. Now, that's, that's a very um, high helicopter point of view of what you're doing. Um, you mentioned as part of your own autobiography that you um, were born into a faith family, a family of strong faith in which the principles of that faith and the laws... And, and I suppose tenants of that faith were what guided the family decision-making, if you like, and in fact had a lot to do with how you were perceived when you came out as a lesbian. Is that still the case, that families are blocked um, by being able to see outside of a faith situation to understand that their faith may not be helping in the child in the situation or anybody who's involved in the situation. Mm -hmm. Do you still have to deal with faith-based, let's not say homophobia, but faith-based blockages to understanding? Mm. The, um, in my experience with the families that I've worked with and actually in my own personal context, family context, the faith-based um, families do struggle, and a lot of us, a lot of the struggle is the fear that the rainbow person will face with the perceived, you know, stigma and discrimination that the family think that they'll receive, and also because of the the what the Bible or their faith guides them to believe, and and those are the types of challenges that create major blocks. Um, a lot of it is actually external. It's, you know, it's it's around how people think things should be done. And when you start to ask questions that are, you know, faith-based, um, you start to understand that the family might have different intentions for how they want to be in relationship with their rainbow family member. And it's not actually about the Bible and it's not actually about their faith. It comes down to a lot of the messages they've received about what's not okay, what is okay. But when you start to work with them one-on-one, -on -one, you start to see, you know, their own morals and belief systems and they don't actually align with pushing people away and shaming people. People don't want to shame people, really. Mm. But sometimes it can be really restricting when you've got... Um, a fixed framework, you know, like the church or the Bible that tells you in black and white, you know, that um, homosexuality is a sin. Mm. 
Mm. Like some people can't get past that because it's there in front of them. But in my experience, like the Bible was written by man. It's man's interpretation of, um, you know, what Jesus went through. I myself believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian, but I don't align with organized religion. So my relationship with God is very personal. Nobody else is involved except me and God. The minute people involve other people or, or society or cultural norms, the minute it becomes incredibly complicated. And people feel overwhelmed and they feel shamed. And when, when shame's in the driver's seat, they, you know, we're at an impasse. Yes, and uh, you've said something that resonates hugely with me because, um, as you know, I I was, um, and if the listeners have been listening for st from the start of my program, they will have found out that I was abused, sexually abused from the age of seven, and a lot of my abusers were church people, um, and therefore that inevitably throws up a major issue for me in terms of um, what I believe, what I don't believe, what I think a Christian is and what I think a Christian isn't. And um, so I think your acceptance of Christ is probably more common than we believe but we aren't aligned to any church because the way the churches have interpreted Christ does not align with our thoughts. I agree. In my experience, the churches have um, inflicted the most harm. In my experience, people's relationships with God when man is out of it and organized religion is out of it is that it is a, it's a safe relationship. But the minute that man or power or control is introduced um, very conveniently through, you know, and I know it's very controversial what we're talking about, but in my personal experience, I've attended a lot of churches growing up. Mm. And I've sat there through some sermons where homosexuality has been brought up and nothing resonates. Those aren't Jesus's words. Not in my experience. No, no. Jesus hung out with the... Mm. the um, the people who were queer and the people who were sex workers because they were probably more his people. They didn't judge him and he didn't judge them. Mm. And so when I, th you know, think about religion and church and all that, it, it, none of that resonates with me. What resonates with me is how I feel when I connect to God. Yeah. I, I experienced um, the discrimination of the church that I was part of, of saying that if you're gay, you cannot take communion. And uh, at that time, I wasn't intellectually even trying to deal with what that statement meant, except I just knew that somehow I was no longer welcome. Um, now I look at that and I wonder about how the people that made that statement from which communion was taken from the Last Supper, the fact that Jesus allowed Judas to participate in the Last Supper, um, the man who would betray him, 
Um, I find it astounding that anyone can determine who should participate in communion. Um, Jesus never said anything about, and this doesn't apply to those, those, and those people. Um, so yes, I, I, um, I have learnt that so much of it is is based on something else, whether it's projection of one's own fears of one's own sexuality, I have no idea. But I was in Australia when the Anglican Diocese of, of Sydney decided that it would put $1 million into the no vote for equal marriage in Australia. It contributed $1 million, not to the poor, not to the starving, not to the beaten, not to the homeless, but $1 million towards the no vote. And I, I just can't believe that mankind is still behaving in that way today. I just can't believe it. I found it. It's gone beyond outrageous. There's something else happening. Um, anyway, let's, let's move on from this a topic which affects so many people and talk about how you have put a lot of your effort in Dunedin into Dunedin Pride. Now, I'm new to Dunedin Pride, but you're not. Would you like to tell your story with Dunedin Pride, please, and then talk about what you think Dunedin Pride is capable of achieving at the moment? Sure. So I joined Dunedin Pride in 2018. I attended the AGM and put my name down as um, I wanted to really be on the board because at that point I had, um, you know, le left my relationship and I felt free to be me. When I say that, I mean free to be as rainbow as I am because I'm a big rainbow. And I felt so passionate and motivated to connect with the queer community in Dunedin. So I started to reach out to people who were on the who were then it was then it was then uh, Q Squared Trust, but then it was reformed to to be Dunedin Pride, because I wanted to meet my community. I wanted to connect and engage, and socialize, and because um, I'd felt really isolated um, before that in terms of you know the the rainbow community. So I joined the board and was in a position of vice chair, um, and. We, our job was very quickly to to focus on what we could and couldn't do, given that we were a volunteer organisation. So we're all volunteer led. Um, we're very very small. Uh, we work with the amount of people, the amount of energy people have. Um, but our basically our um, constitution is that we are out there to create safe spaces for people who are queer or questioning to feel safe and be themselves and socialise. So our relationships are with larger queer organisations like Rainbow Youth, Inside Out, and, and we it's our duty to provide platforms and spaces for people who are rainbow in Dunedin um, to come and connect. At the moment, the funding is there, but it's only there for youth engagement, isn't it? What yes. else does Dunedin Pride need funding for? Uh, we need funding for um, a variety of things, such as, m you know, maintaining sustainable social groups, 
Um, I see needs for parents of young rainbow kids. We've had requests to run groups, but unfortunately, like with our volunteer power and post-COVID, like we were nearly at dissolution, as you know. Um, And so my main mission is to try and get Dunedin Pride to be sustainable and not and have enough energy behind it, funding behind it, and like people power behind it to, to, to not just move year to year. Now, I think you're hiding something here. You were the chair of Dunedin Pride, weren't you? Yes, I was the chair in uh, the end of 2019 and 2020. So... And we were operating with very low numbers on our board. I was running without a vice chair. And I, a lot of it was just due to burnout. Like a lot of the rainbow community, we work in social services. We're protesters. We're activists. We're social justice fighters. And we're people. We have families. We have, you know, lifestyles and, and lives to maintain. So we tend to take on a lot because we want to, because we're passionate and motivated to support you know, our community, but then what happens is we do tend to feel burnout. And so, you know, one of the main challenges was trying to keep a full board because people for just just different reasons had to um, make a decision to just put it down, which was understandable. Um, and because Dunedin's so small, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the work is political too. A lot of the decision making is political. A lot of the um, things that we talk about, there's history and it's personal. So a lot of that was a challenge and something that, you know, was threatening to the Mm. the longevity of Dunedin Pride. Mm. And lack of money. Yeah. (laughs) Huge lack of money. Yeah. Would you please describe the makeup of the board at the moment, just to give an impression to the listeners of who is representing um, the Dunedin Pride Rainbow community on the board at the moment? Sure. So, apart from me, you don't have to talk about me. Okay. So our chair is Angelo. Um, are you wanting like just just the the, the sort of area they work in? Okay. Or who they so Angelo's and- um, works in the area of sexual violence and. I guess I would describe him as a social justice fighter um, or an activist. Like, you know, I really like his vision and his um, his motivation in terms of what needs to be attended to because I'm more of um, like a, a relationship people person, so things are very slowed down for me. So as a chair, I, I, I wasn't able to really make decisions probably in the best way which I totally own, but and so we've got a really awesome chair. And so so yourself and myself, vice chair. So effectively we are we have more of a leadership role and then we have two youth liaison um, or youth coordinator. It used to be one, but the role is so big that we expanded it to two. We've got two re- very wonderful youth um, coordinators. We've got an events coordinator and we've got some general members. We've got a training and support officer. We've got a secretary and a treasurer, and a the secretary, uh, uh, and then and a contact officer. So we're trying to. Some of these roles are new because we realised how big we were, and that actually the work needs sometimes two people. But this is a. I think this is a full board, which is 
new because we haven't been operating at a full board for over a year and a half now. Just, uh, if you could also just um, paint a bit more of that picture. So we have a transgender representative on the board. Mm -hmm. yep. Who else do we have on the board in terms of representing particular sections of Rainbow at mm. the moment? Um, so we, we have trans advocates on the board. Um, we've got, and, and I don't want to like out people though, that's the, what do you have? You like, don't have to use the name if you don't want to. No, well, I mean, we have some, some, I just call them queer because right. everybody just sits under that right. umbrella and it's yeah. just the, the word that I like to yeah. use, but we've yeah. got gay and lesbian yeah. representation and, um, takatapu representation, so... And we're also looking to get some Maori voices. Mm. Yeah, so, and that's why I used the word takatapui, which mm. is, um, and, and what I've been taught is that uh, people who identify as Maori and as queer, some of them feel comfortable using the word takatapui. Mm -hmm. Which Right. Is, and yeah. that, that is something that the board is, is moving slowly towards because mm. we recognize that Maori may not particularly want to be on an existing organization's board which has not particularly demonstrated that it understands Maori rainbow. Would that be correct? And I'm coming to this from a huge amount of ignorance, the differences. Mm. We've had previous members on our board who identified as Takatapui mm -hmm. and um, we wouldn't be doing it justice if we were, you know, trying to create safe spaces without takatapui representation and consultation. Um, so our aim is to engage and create a better relationship with local takatapui who can um, help us and who we can help in terms of creating safe spaces and and giving the subgroups whatever it is that they need to be able to connect and socialise in a safe space. And just a bit of publicity, please. Uh, we're going to have a youth ball. Yes. Can you talk about that very briefly? So the youth ball is going to be at the Otago Museum. And so Poppy and Jackie are our youth coordinators and they're doing an incredible job in terms of um, organising the ball. We've got some really cool stuff planned, which I don't want to give away too much because I want it to be a surprise. Um, but Who we're, is it for? It's for young queer and questioning. Um, young meaning Young, um, 13 to 18. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, that's, where our it's, that's where our funding sits, is in that 13 to 18 age bracket. And a lot of those, I mean, a lot of that demographic is where most of the need is because they need role models as well and they're really needing resources to be able to feel safe in their queerness. So... I guess that's why we target the 13 to 18 year olds sort of, and, and mostly school people in school. And we've currently got Trish, who's our school liaison. She's actually a paid role, which does show some growth. Um, so she goes into schools and attends to any gender diverse issues, concerns, what's going on for groups, how to create queer spaces, more awareness, teacher education. So, And she brings that back to us and we try and do what we can. And she's also in, uh, supported by Inside Out, who are a queer org in Wellington. So, um, and we're going to, I hope, celebrate Dunedin Pride mm -hmm. beyond the youth ball. Yes. Perhaps the next month there may be some 
Yes, events. That's right. There are there's there's are in talks. the planning stage. Yep. Yeah, so we're, right? our lovely um, crew is our events uh, coordinator, and so we've got some really awesome um, people who are wanting to help out with Pride Week and, and create an opportunity for Dunedin Rainbows to celebrate, mm. um, especially post-COVID. I think we're all really keen to be able to get together and just celebrate um, being rainbow and, and ha- you know, just have some good right. connection But we will time. not be having a march down the main road Unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) Unless everyone wants to look like just faces poking out of woolly woolly hoodies. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the best time of year, but, I mean, we're working with what we've got. We we weren't in an opportunity to run uh, Pride Week in April at all. No, no. No. Um, All right. Danielle, thank you so much for your time. We have come to the end of the second episode. and I've enjoyed it very much, um, listening to you, your thoughts, your wisdom, what you've brought to the Rainbow community, and which no doubt you will continue to bring to the Rainbow community, and in doing so, improve the whole of our society. So thank you for the work you're doing, and thank you for the time that you've given me on Outrageous. Thank you, Malcolm. Malcolm, I really appreciate being here, and thank you for taking the time. I've had a great time. So great. That's great. That's it, listeners. Once again, from Outrageous, this is Malcolm Angus signing off, and thank you for listening on 105.4 FM. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.